You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. I will repeat a subtle rune and thronging suns of otherwhere shall blaze upon the blinded air, and specters terrible and fair shall walk the riven world at noon. The star that was mine empery is dust upon unwinnowed skies, but primal dreams have made me wise, and soon the shattered ears shall rise to my remembered sorcery. To mantic muttering, brief and low, my palaces shall lift amain, my bowers bloom, I will regain the lips whereon my lips have lain in rose-red twilights long ago. Before my murmured exorcism, the world, a wispy wraith, shall flee, a stranger earth, a weirder sea, peopled with shapes of a fairy shall swell upon the waste abysm. The pantheons of darkened stars shall file athwart the crocus dawn. Goddess and gorgon, lar and fawn, shall tread the amaranthine lawn, and giants fight their thunderous wars. Like graven mountains of basalt, Dark idols of my demons there shall tower through bright zones of air, fronting the sun with level stare, and hell shall pave my deepest vault. Phantom and fiend and sorcerer shall serve me till my term shall pass. And I become no more, alas, than a frail shadow on the glass before some latter conjurer. Welcome to the freedom of fantastic things, an hour of program drawn largely from the works of the California Romantics, a group including, among others, Ambrose Bierce, George Sterling, Clark Ashton Smith, and Nora Mae French. I'll continue with a few other poems by Ashton Smith. Amethane, Amethane, Amethane. Who hath seen the towers of Amethane, swan-throated, rising from the main? whose tides to some remoter moon flow in the fadeless afternoon. Who hath seen the towers of Amethane shall sleep and dream of them again. On falcon banners never furled beyond the marches of the world, they blazon forth the heraldries of dream-established sovereignties whose princes wage immortal wars, but 
for beauty with the bale red stars. Amid the courts of Amethane, the broken iris rears again, restored from gardens youth hath known. With strains from ruinous lutes long flown, the legends tell in Amethane of her that is its chatelaine, eh bien, who could be the mistress of that fair place? Dreamer, beware. In her wild eyes, full many a sunken sunset lies. In gazing, you shall find, perchance, the fallen kingdoms of romance. And past the bourns of north and south, follow, follow, follow the roses of her mouth. Dreamer, awake, but I, I remain to ride with them in Amethane. Who hath seen the towers of Amethane, swan-throated rising from the main, whose tides to some remoter moon flow in the fadeless afternoon? Who hath seen the towers of Amethane shall sleep and dream of them again. Oh, sleep and dream of them again. <clears throat> the Witch with Eyes of Amber. I met a witch with amber eyes who slowly sang a scarlet rune, shifting to an icy laughter like the laughter of the moon. Red as a wanton's was her mouth, and fair the breast she bade me take, with a word that cloven clung, burning like a furnace flake. But from her bright and lifted bosom, when I touched it with my hand, came the many-needled coldness of a glacier-taken land. And lo, the witch with eyes of amber vanished like a blown-out flame, leaving but the lichen-eaten stone that bore a blotted name. What might be the thoughts of a king who comes back as a ghost and looks at his kingdom now given to dust and desolation. The kingdom of shadows. A crownless king who reigns alone. I live within this ashen land where winds rebuild from wandering sand my columns and my crumbled throne. My sway is on the men that were and one sweet women dear and dead Beside a marble queen, my bed is made within the sepulcher. In gardens desolate to the sun, faring alone, I sigh to find the dusty closes dim and blind where winter and the spring are one. My shadowy visage, gray with grief, in sunken waters walled with sand, I see where all mine ancient land lies yellow like an autumn leaf. Across the broken monuments, 
memorial of the dreams of old, the sunset flings a ghostly gold to mock mine ancient affluence. About the tombs of stone and brass, the silver lights of evening flee, and slowly now and solemnly I see the pomp of shadows pass. Often beneath some fervid moon with splendid spells I vainly strive, dead loves imperial to revive and speak a heart-remembered rune. But ah, the lovely phantoms fail, the faces fade to mist and light, the vermal lips of my delight are dim, the eyes are ashen pale. A crownless king who reigns alone, I live within this ashen land where winds rebuild from wandering sand my columns and my crumbled throne. About 1918, among much other material, Smith wrote an especially evocative fragment as far as uh, at least two experts present, or maybe three, there is no continuation of it. Well, I love this little piece of verse, and I wanted to create a home for it, find a home for it, so I created it. And this is Demeure Exotique, Exotic Abode. And um, the opening stanza is by Smith, and I repeat it at the end. Where the brazen griffins guard from the satin-footed pod and the lion of the sands, all the wealth of elder lands, rich in unremembered things, tombs and crowns of crumbled kings, ebon lutes with silver strings, pearls and ivory and nard. Amid the desert sands, in siegeant style, two griffins, all of bronze, still stood on guard outside the gateway to that old stone pile. The structure, dark, perdurable, and hard, by war, simoon, or earthquake, never jarred, permitted no intruders through its door. With massive iron valves, the door was barred, denying facile access as before to all the treasures heaped inside around that floor. A treasury where kings had made their tombs, it even served as palace for some queen who danced amid its mortuary glooms. She whirled with gestures broad and unforeseen as lutenists, their fingers quick and keen, would play their ebon lutes with silver strings. Her nakedness deployed, but not obscene. Her arms and legs agleam with gems and rings. How many trysts she brought to pass and midnight flings. Entombed within, she too had changed to dust with all her lovers, 
But where then had flown the passion, where the rage and where the lust? Within, all now lay mute, no lovers moan, nor sob of disbelief, nor gripe, nor groan, nor sigh of disbelief, nor yet of dread. Her strong <clears throat> box had remained and had not flown. The gemstones flaunted in or out of bed, displayed on foot and leg, on hand and arm and head. With massive iron valves, the door was barred. Were the same valves then welded shut besides? No griffins really had to stand on guard. Somehow this place resisted history's tides, eternal flux of callens, knowns, and ides. Bequeathed, perchance, from Atlantean times. Was this not magic? so to thwart those tides? But is it only in those other climes that such takes place, and only in those other times? Safeguarding all that wealth of elder lands, way past those outland peaks, it still stands there, this treasure house amid the sun-drenched sand, with fierce, with stern, and yes, with brazen stare, those owl-eyed griffins all of bronze still glare outside that doorway, just outside that gate. Out through that door, sometimes, a ghost-like air, a phantom tune, would seem to infiltrate. But all the lutes lie silent where Within, they rest in wait. Where? Where the brazen griffins guard from the satin-footed pod and the lion of the sands, all the wealth of elder lands, rich and unremembered things, tombs and crowns of crumbled kings, ebon lutes with silver strings, pearls and ivory, and nard. Demeure exotique. For those who might not know what nard is, it's spike nard, um, a very costly, fragrant unguent um, that was used in uh, Greco-Roman antiquity and very expensive. <laughs> Now we'll go from one geographical absolute, the desert, to another, the ocean. And think of San Francisco, uh, the Monterey Peninsula, Point Lobos. This is a tribute written to Nora Mae French soon after she died. I saw the shaken stars of midnight stir, and winds that sought the morning bore to me the thunder where the legions of the sea are shattered on her stormy sepulchre. 
and pondering on bitter things that were, on cruelties the mindless face decree, I caught some shadow of her mystery, the loneliness and mystery of her. The waves that break on undiscovered strands, the winds that die on seas that bear no sail, stars that the deaf eternal skies annul were not so lonely as was she. Our hands, we reach to thee for time, O spirit mighty and inscrutable. Nora Mae French was born in upstate New York, in East Aurora, in 1881, and she died by her own hand in November of 1907. You can read all about the Biographica in a volume, um, The Outer Gate, which we, for the first time in almost 100 years, reprints all of her poems. They were first published in 1910 in San Francisco, uh, edited, among others, by George Sterling, and uh, to which I have added other poems that I managed to find. Also, there's a long uh, biographical and critical introduction, as well as a long section of notes and notices, and also tributes from a variety of poets, both from that period and also later. Although her, her material is not, strictly speaking, fantasy, I wouldn't want to define exactly what that is, but it partakes of the general imaginative flair characteristic of literature before World War I. I would like to read now a few of her poems, more than a few. The Outer Gate. Life said, my house is thine with all its store. Behold, I open shining ways to thee. Of every inner portal make thee free. O child, I may not bar the outer door. Go from me if thou wilt to come no more. But all thy pain is mine, thy flesh of me. And must I hear thee faint and woefully call on me from the darkness and implore. Nay, mother, for I follow at thy will, but oftentimes thy voice is sharp to hear, thy trailing fragrance heavy on the breath. Always the outer hall is very still, and on my face a pleasant wind and clear blows straightly from the narrow gate of death. Among other things, Nora May uh, was um, a gardener, and this is reflected in some of the poems I've chosen. She was also an accomplished horsewoman. She made her living as, a, as an artist. She worked in a leather factory and drew the designs that were realized in leather. So technically, she had to be pretty good. Like comic book artists, you have to be very accomplished. This is best loved. 
uh, I should mention that if Sterling and Smith seem at times obsessed with the macrocosmic, hers is a different obsession, the microcosmic. It was a joy whose stem I did not break, a little thing I passed with crowded hands and gave a backward look for beauty's sake. Of all I pulled and wove and flung aside, was any you preferred above the rest? I only know they pleased me well and died. But this, it lives distinct in memory's sight, a little thing and curving like a pearl. I think his heart had never seen the light. This probably reflects the next poem, a biology class. Uh, that's, it's called the vivisection. <clears throat> we saw in pitying skill and curious hands put living flesh apart till bare and terrible the tiny heart pulsed and was still. We saw grief's sudden knife strip through the pleasant flesh of soul disguise lay for a second space before our eyes a naked life. This also reflects gardening, but it's also a metaphor. It's called The Little Memories. Yes, it's addressed to a lover. My thoughts of you. Although I strain and sigh at stubborn roots, at boughs that tear my face, no plants in all my garden grow so high nor fill with sturdier life a wider place. It pleases me and wakes an old delight to go with wordy shears in idle times and trim them as a patient gardener might, clipping the thorny boughs to curves and rhymes. If these were all opposing strength with strength to make my hurt an easier thing to bear, if these alone usurped my garden's length, it would not be so hard. I should not care. But close against the ground, oh, small and weak, the trodden flowers, the little memories grow. Uprooting fingers press them to my cheek. Dear heart, I love you and I miss you so. Nora May did a few poems in free verse, although compared to much free verse today, this seems quite disciplined. Again, it's addressed to a lover. Your beautiful passing. Across my thought has trailed your beautiful passing as a wild bird ruffles the motionless brink of the water, moving in gradual path on its mirror of shadow, after him, streaking and trembling, <clears throat> long ripples of silver. When Nora May wrote this poem and had it published, it was published in Out West, the, most of the California missions were in ruins, apart from a few like San Juan Capistrano, the mission at Carmel, the, one, uh, the Mission Dolores in San Francisco, I think maybe the Mission in, in Solano, 
where the churches were still being used. <clears throat> the mission graves. By man forgotten, nature remembers with her fitful tears. The wooden slabs lose name and date with years and crumble rotten. The padre there on saint's day from an evening rite returning set for each unknown soul a candle burning with muttered prayer. Glowworms they shone, strange, spectral gleaming through the lonely dark, whose nameless dust did each faint glimmer mark? Skull, crumbling bone. Ah, the dead knew, the grateful dead called far called from voids of space, each by the tiny spark that gave them grace, watched the night through. One of my favorites is exquisite little poem, A Place of Dreams. Here will we drink content, comrade of mine. Here, with the little stream to meet the sun, flows down a yellow rock like yellow wine. Here will we launch a leaf to distant shores, and in it shut a word for wonderland, the blue unknown beyond the sycamores. She also did a few prose poems, and this is one. She recalled it out of a dream verbatim. I would like to have been permitted to uh, roam in some of her dreams. Think not, O Lilius. Think not, O Lilius, that the love of this night will endure in the sun. Hast thou beheld fungi, white, evil, rosy-lined, poisonous, shrivel in the eyes of day? In this wilderness of strange hearts, it is not thine alone that concerns me. Many brave hearts of men are more to me than thine. The hearts of men breathe deeply. As for thy heart, it runs from me. It is quicksilver. It does not concern me greatly. Her last two poems, which are not the last two poems in the book, uh, are Yesterday and The Mourner. Again, uh, Yesterday is addressed to a, a lover. Now all my thoughts were crisp and thinned to elfin threads, to gleaming browns. Like tawny grasses lean with wind, they drew your heart across the downs. Your will, of all the winds that blew, they drew across the world to me to thread my whimsy thoughts of you along the downs above the sea. Beneath the pool, beyond the dune, so green it was and amber-walled, a face would glimmer like a moon seen whitely through an emerald. And there my mermaid fancy lay and dreamed the light in you were one, and flickered in her seaweed's, seaweeds sway, a broken largesse 
of the sun. Above the world, as evening fell, I made my heart into a sky, and through a twilight, like a shell, I saw the shining seagulls fly. I found between the sea and land, and lost again, unwrit, unheard, a song that fluttered in my hand and vanished like a silver bird. The mourner. Because my love has wave and foam for speech and never words, and yearns as water grieves with white arms curving on a listless beach, I am become beloved of the night, her huge sea lands ineffable and far, hold crouched and splendid sorrow, eyed with light and pain who beads his forehead with a star. The next is called Ave Atque Vale, and she actually wrote it uh, about two years before she died. Again, it's addressed to a lover. It gathers where the moody sky is bending. It stirs the air along familiar ways. A sigh for strange things dear, forever ending, for beauty shrinking in these alien days. Now, nothing is the same. Old visions move me. I wander silent through the waning land and find for youth and little leaves to love me the old, old lichen crumbling in my hand. What shifting films of distance fold you, blind you, this windy eve of dreams I cannot tell. I know they grope through some strange mist to find you, my hands that give you greeting and farewell. And this is the very last poem in the book, and appropriately is called At the End. This was not included in her collection of poems that were published in 1910, perhaps for obvious reasons. At the end, tremblingly and spent, I ran and fell and ran again. A sorrow made me fleet. For very fear, its shape I could not tell. The briars tore my feet. In broken flight across the cruel land, so weary was I that I only smiled when, swift and strong, a tender, mighty hand appraised me like a child. It was not you I feared, rejoiced, I cried. His touch had healed my hurts, no more they bled. Life, radiant, God has sent you to my side. Nay, I am death. Said. He said, <clears throat> thank you. I 
I will uh, soon launch into a medley concerning um, ancient Atlantis, but uh, by way of a tribute to Nora May, in which there's an Atlantean reference. Thy Spirit Walks the Sea. Uh, the title is a quote from a uh, beautiful tribute by Clark Ashton Smith called to Norme French. But I will dream thy spirit walks the sea, unpacified with Lethe. Standing upon this lyric promontory, which rises up beside the western sea, we muse on Phyllis and her sapphic glory. Since that same time when you but seem to flee, and in these waves they cast your ashes free. Now, more than half a hundred years have passed. Beyond this world, its impure grief and glee, you hold a greater world, the oceans vast, with whose untrammeled realms your spirit shall outlast. Within what sunken colonnades and gardens do you roam? amid what palaces of some deep Atlantean past, whose regal ways you have returned to claim once more as home? And have you found beyond this planet's barriers and bars those greater spheres and realms deep in the ocean sea of stars? The following medley will reflect different aspects of Atlantis, both in that remote period as well as now. What with all the amazing um, advances made in submarine archaeology. Avalonesis. When Avalon and Lioness and Is were one, above the ocean seas, eternal hiss and spray, due northwest off Cornwall, Avalonessus lay, that sea-green isle of apple orchards, where the sun would spin brave webs of time in orbits never done, where lovers, in the midst of fountains and their play, upon the sea-green sod would seek some place away, whenas the world waxed old, with time long since begun. It was then it was there that I loved you, my love, with paradisiac flames more ragingly afire than any star within the empery of night, until that doom-filled day when ocean's wine above did loom a foam and down did fall one wave entire to drown the fires of love of life and all of light. Next is an underwater tableau. Here where the fountains of the deep sea flow in fair resemblance of eternity and where the lights of deep sea creatures glow but faintly in the black infinity, there stand vague shapes of huge antiquity Colossal fanes and vasty palaces and markets once alive with merchantry and obelisks like monstrous phalluses outline the streets of this 
deep sea metropolis, and where proud kings and princes pomped in splendor near divine, within the great throne hall arch royal, within the Acropolis, the tentacles of giant squids in darkness now entwine. Yea, even as foretold by mystic prophets long ago, a boundless ocean empire hath Atlantis come to know. The following poem was evidently written sometime relatively soon after well, the great cataclysm. It's called The Crown and Trident. And it uh, starts with an epigraph from Michel de la Bretagne. And here in the, in the midst of that immense, marvelous, and imperial city, Mount Atlantis, like a first Olympus, soared eternally into the air. High noon, and on this cloudless day, how bright the sun upon the arch acropolis, from lowest slopes up to its utmost height, from colonnades, towers, temples, palaces, fine etched like sacrificial chalices, to where a crown and trident huge aspires to utmost empyrean synthesis, to where the white gold breath of sun conspires with oracalque the most resplendent fires, and where atop the mountain's mass of granite attains no sound of fanfares, flutes, or lyres, only the wandering notes of star and planet. Only this coin with crown and trident stamped in gold remains to speak the high-spired splendidness of old. It would seem that merchantry was the lifeblood of the empire of Atlantis, as not only recorded by Plato himself, but as revealed further by the diligent researchers of Michel de la Bretagne, the great Renaissance uh, Atlantologist, as well as poet and writer of romances. This is a simple picture of what is evidently the aristocracy of the merchants, the merchant princes. And they have been summoned uh, outside the Acropolis, um, outside the, the gate. And, there, and the arch king, the emperor of Atlantis, is, will be coming forth at some time soon. Outside the great gate Acropolitan, due south of Mount Atlantis, they await in splendor more than Necropolitan. Their crowns and great rich robes all aureate. The morning's white gold rays irradiate with lusters and with lights ineffable. And shall he still come forth? The hour is late. The tremors of suspense they cannot quell nor yet the love and awe that in their hearts foretell. Now, fanfares and alarums, soon shall he, the king, come forth, impanoplied with arch-imperial splendors, non-parel. The merchant princes 
have all faced the gate upon the north. In splendor more than that of those in some necropolis, they wait within the plaza south of the arch Acropolis. Another simple tableau of a merchant ship traveling west, an argosy of trade. By the way, if any of you have ever seen any of the films depicting Greco-Roman antiquity, you have undoubtedly they have at some point shown a trireme moving. I remember the first time I saw such a film, it reminded me there's nothing more than a monstrous uh, water spider, the water bugs, but with those three ranks of oars on either side, dipping relentlessly. This is an argosy of trade. Like some strange beast called forth from deep sea caves, with triple banks of oars on either side, westward the bark pavans across the waves. The sign and sigil of an imperial pride, a crown and trident spreads against the wide and bleached white sail, its woven silhouette. No land nor other ship may be descried. Here, where dark seas and empty skies are met, where soon in fierce flame gold the sun shall sink and set. A vast rich hoard the trireme holds within her cargo glooms. Furs from the north, wines from the south, lanterns and lamps of jet, argent and ore and rare gem stones and opulent perfumes. Westward, an argosy of trade pavans across the waves like some strange beast with many legs called forth from deep sea caves. The following poem is based upon a painting by a friend of mine, the painter Jesse Allen, uh, and it's called Lo Primordial. And uh, for me, Atlantean is also a metaphor for um, something primeval, primordial. Lo, primor, lo primordial. We have seen where the suns, like a host of great shields, swarm and swim, all arrayed in a sky without end, speeding through t time and space as light to more light yields. We have flown with great birds, where the winds and waves blend in a wild surge of spume to descend and ascend where Leviathan lifts and spouts up from the main. We have stood where huge trees tower and interdepend at the base of volcanoes whose breath is of bane. But on the rim of their mouths flame the pure blooms of fire as if out of another domain. From far up in the sky, with a scream and joy, fierce and bare, the eagle strikes, the hare screams out his agonized fear, but in vain, for the scream of the eagle must meet thus with the scream of the hare. 
parrot screech, snarl of cat, barking of baboon. What infinite passion yearns. The silence, profound and primeval, that held sway before time now returns. Another poem on Avalonesis. That first one was written by Michel de la Bretagne, and I translated it from French. This is his redaction uh, of an ancient Atlantean text. In fact, most of the poems are. It seems as though Avalonesis specialized in uh, growing apples and producing various products related to apples, apple wine, cider, and so forth. Island of apples and of apple wine, where rich and year-round crops of apples grow and apple blossoms bloom above the brine. You grant fair haven to the ships that go upon the shoaling seas, green crystalline flow, fair haven with great harbors and green coves. Refuge and rest you grant. Soft sea winds blow adown your arbors where the seabird roves and lovers love to loiter deep within your groves. Pausing upon their northern or their southern flight to take a brief refreshment of your water troves, amid your fragrant isle, the great wild swans alight. Island where apple blossoms bloom above the brine, O realm, divine with apples and with apple wine. Sometime after the great cataclysm, the royal family, which had taken refuge in Poseidonis, the mountain heartland, they just had happened to go there because no one knew exactly when the great cataclysm would happen. He received this report from the arch royal governor of the Atlantean forts and what are now the British Isles. And the main one, the great watchtower, looked out over what is now the Irish Sea. And this is a letter from Valoth, from what it would now be southwest Wales. In fact, it would be uh, what remains of Minid Presley, uh, a peak, the highest in that region, about 1,800 feet above sea level. My prince, our Avalonesis is now no more. Upon that single day and night of rain, beneath the threshold of the deepest shore, with all earth shuddering as in fear and pain, slowly the island sank below the main, leaving behind a foam-filled wrath unknown, more bleak and barren than an arctic plain, a desolation utterless and lone, where winds and waves now mourn and make imperial moan. The blossoms of the foam, a white and fatal green, now bloom above those miles of apple blossoms flown beneath a deeper sea, no longer fair and green. Submerged beneath the threshold of the deepest shore, Alas, my prince, 
our Avalonesis is now no more. Of course, along with most of the rest of the empire. Ancestral memory revived. It seems some modern traveler has traveled who knows about these Atlantean ruins uh, and has traveled to Minid Presley. The traveler had come from far away to southwest Wales, to Minid Presley, to con the view southwest of there by day. Out on the slate gray, calm expanse of sea, he, he looked and thought. Nobody could foresee just how that sea green isle might disappear. Avalonesis, who would wish to flee from there? The distant notes of trumpeteer, was that he what he had heard faint in his inner ear? He saw behind them, on the spur below the peak, above the massive flanks, titanic stones uprear, the tower's base, built way back in time beyond antique. How high those waves, they must have washed to touch this high, the sea a foam-filled mass as far as I could veer. The rolling surf of thunder constant in his ear. The blast of mighty fanfares blowing on for I. I will end with a, a symbol for all splendor lost. And it has an uh, epigraph from George Sterling, one of his three sonnets on the night sea. Abides nor goal, nor ultimate of peace, nor lifts a beacon on the cosmic deep to guide our wandering world on seas sublime. No more, no less than Plato's quaint conceit, Atlantis, more than myth, this memory of a paradise we may once more complete, this image of an island empery, supreme in wealth, extent, antiquity, has now become my own arcanic lower, but more, a torch deep in eternity, a symbol for all splendor lost and mower, a sign for all of loveliness evanished evermore forevermore, perhaps there shall rise yet in far-off time beyond this bleak, blind interim of now and nevermore, many a new Atlantis from the cosmic sea sublime. And there, perhaps, in future gardens marvelous and vast, shall bloom again all splendor and all beauty lost and past. I will now end with um, a few selections by Clark Ashton Smith.
One of the beauties of Smith's writing for me was that he has preserved certain usages as had some other poetry written in traditional forms, such as the true second person singular, which people think is incredibly old fashioned. We have lost marvelous things from our language. But I love thee says something that I love you does not. And for an alternate to you as a plural, ye. And also Smith preserves, shall we say, what many modern poets couldn't be bothered with. But Smith regarded it as a very important legacy, and I happen to agree. Transcendence. To look on love with disenamored eyes, to see with gaze relentless, rendered clear of hope or hatred, of desire and fear, the insuperable nothingness that lies behind the veils of various disguise which life or death may happily weave, to hear forevermore in flute and harp the mere and all-resolving silence, recognize the gules of autumn in the greening leaf and in the poppy pod, the poppy flower. This is to be the lord of love and grief, over time's illusion and thyself supreme, as half aroused in some nocturnal hour, the dreamer knows and dominates his dream. One of my favorite lyrics, and I think one of the most perfect things Smith ever wrote, it's, we shall meet. We shall meet once again in the pale and latter summers and recall like olden mummers an old play of love and pain. I shall greet you, not with kisses of the days aforetime, knowing these would fall vain as those of phantoms blowing nightward to the last abysses. Faint perfume will attend you like a scrine imprisoned myrrh, and my dreaming heart will fallen autumn's stir, half their fallen light will lend you. From the tomb love shall rise, mutely in a specter's fashion, to the seeming lamps forever bleak and ashen, of our necromantic eyes. But no tear shall we weep, knowing tears are void and vain, like the scattered drops of rain on a desert's iron sleep. Chill and sear, like the grass flapping in a field of snow, we shall know that nothing mattered as we tell our faded woe ere we pass. And I will end with one of Smith's poems in prose. One of my favorites. One of the things I especially admire in Smith is the way he reminds people, especially modern people, uh, that despite all the lamps and lights modern science has lit, the darkness still is there and extends forever. 
the Memnons of the night. Ringed with a bronze horizon, which at a point immensely remote seems welded with the blue brilliance of a sky of steel, they oppose the black splendor of their porphyritic forms to the sun's insuperable gaze. Reared in the morning twilight of primeval time by a race whose towering tombs and cities are one with the dust of their builders in the slow lapse of the desert, they abide to face the terrible latter dawns that move abroad in a starkness of fire, consuming the veils of night on the vast and sphinx-like desolations. Level with the light, their tenebrific brows preserve a pride as of titan kings. In their lidless, implacable eyes of staring stone is the petrified despair of those who have gazed too long on the infinite. Mute as the mountains from whose iron matrix they were hewn, their mouths have never acknowledged the sovereignty of the suns that pass in triumphal flame from horizon unto horizon of the prostrate land. Only at eve, when the west is like a brazen furnace and the far-off mountains smolder like ruddy gold in the depth of the heated heavens. Only at eve, when the east grows infinite and vague and the shadows of the waste are one with the increasing shadow of night. Then, and then only, a music rings to the bronze horizon, a strong, a somber music, strange and sonorous, like the singing of black stars or a litany of gods that invoke oblivion. A music that thrills the desert to its heart of adamant till the last echoes of its jubilation, terrible as the trumpets of doom, are one with the black silence of infinity. Thank you very much. You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony.